0: It's an astonishing statement Um, would love to know why he thinks this is true, where he got this from. I don't know if somebody else that he trusted said these kinds of things and he simply believed them. There are timestamps down below so you can bounce around
1: this video as you like. But if you're new, here's a quick little recap. Brian Simmons is the guy that has just made his own version of the Bible and it is selling millions of copies around the world. First thing you need to know is he is not a trained scholar with the normal credentials to do a Bible translation. In some cases, he seems to admit as much.
2: I had brilliant leaders and men of God and mighty brainiacs tell me I had no business to translate the Bible because I was not a Greek scholar. They said, where are your credentials? Who do you think you are?
1: But... He has something beyond training, something more than training, in his opinion. He claims that God himself has given him secrets of Hebrew and Greek, new revelation and new understanding of the Bible that ultimately none of us have never known before. And now he has put that into the text of his new version of the Bible. Now you're starting to understand this
2: is a big deal. And uh, he promised that he would uh, give me secrets that had not been disclosed. I began to receive a supernatural download Of insight and revelation that has continued to this day. The Holy Spirit was speaking to me as I was working on these texts. I discovered and uncovered so many mysteries and glory realms in the book of Psalms, it will take your breath away. I believe God gave me the key to the book of Proverbs. I've made some discoveries. I don't know who to talk to. I mean, I'm finding out all these secrets and I'm translating. Ah! Revelation secrets. I told you that the Lord had given me secrets and He has. Secrets that only come from above. The secrets of the Lord. He's beginning to share them with me, and I'd like to share them with you. Now,
1: that's what led to my passion project, hiring scholars to do reviews, and then I'm just asking them to give their honest thoughts. I'm not filtering their opinions. I'm not cutting out their real thoughts from the videos. This is their real thoughts, and you can read their papers for yourself. Everything's available for free down below, and the point here is to give us an insight, right? We have claims about secrets of Hebrew and Greek. Well, let's get people who are experts in those languages to see if this is genius or folly. And... It's folly, by the way, spoiler alert. But that's enough from me. Now you get to hear from Dr. Craig Blomberg, who is a very highly respected and well-known and well-equipped person to try to walk us through how Brian Simmons has handled 1 Corinthians. For uh, many of us, Dr. Blomberg doesn't need an introduction. Um, you've You've been featured in lots of different things. You've written lots of different books. You've done serious academic work on the historic reliability of the gospels, on Jesus and history. But for people who are just meeting you for the very first time, Dr. Blomberg, could you give us like a little introduction? What work have you done specifically related to Bible translation? Which is why I've asked you to do a review of the Passion Translation in particular.
0: I was invited many years ago to uh, work on the uh, original uh, New Living Translation, uh, one of three people to uh, revise Ken Taylor's Living Bible paraphrased uh, on the Gospel of Matthew. I was invited as a second-tier consultant for both the uh, ESV and the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which is now simply the... CSB to uh, read over and comment on drafts of Matthew and Mark. But uh, my main work has been uh, since uh, 2008, I've been part of the Committee on Bible Translation for the NIV, and we meet uh, annually to consider uh, proposals for uh, revision uh, to various texts there. So uh, I got to be a part of uh, the last few years uh, leading up to the rollout of the 2011 NIV and to continue to be involved.
1: Right on. Now, what you've done is a scholarly review of 1 Corinthians in the Passion Translation. And just, I mean, I'm going to say what you know already, but for the audience's sake, I'm really excited to hear the feedback from scholars on the Passion Translation because um, with my limited abilities, I'm seeing all these red flags and all these issues and stuff, but it it's just we want more. We want, we want really careful examination in a sense. It's like this is what should have happened before it was published, but we can do it after the fact and make it available for free. And Dr. Blomberg's paper and everything he's sharing here is going to be available totally for free. We ask nothing in return. It'll be in the video description below as well as on my website, BibleThinker.org. So you start your paper, um, you started by mentioning your attitude towards paraphrases. I like that you, you did that so people could understand you're not just trying to demonize paraphrases. What, what is your attitude towards paraphrases?
0: I am very grateful for one in particular, uh, when Ken Taylor, uh, during the 1960s and then culminating in the early 70s, produced what he called the Living Bible Paraphrased, um, designed to be something that his teens could read and appreciate and understand. Um, I was a teen at the time and uh, came to faith through uh, a campus life club, Youth for Christ, in my high school. And uh, the Living Bible was uh, the, the book of choice, the Bible of choice uh, in those days. And it really um, got me excited about uh, studying scripture in a way That the existing translations, which weren't nearly as many as we have now, uh, in those days, uh, hadn't done. Um, People were very about its limitations. Uh, And so uh, I read it with with my eyes wide open. But uh, um, I appreciated that immensely. And uh, when Eugene Peterson's The Message came out, uh, I was already well into my career and uh, had plenty of actual translations rather than paraphrases, but have watched uh, a lot of people, uh, both in uh, sermons, in churches, as well as in private reading, use it to supplement uh, a major translation to give uh, all kinds of fresh insights.
1: So you're criticisms which we're going to talk about here on the passion translation they don't have anything to do with a general bad attitude towards paraphrase or a sort of resistance to the idea of a paraphrase um the things that you're going to share here will will both treat the trans the passion as a translation or we'll talk about that issue but you'll also address it as a, as if it were a paraphrase even though it's not being it's not being <laughs> shopped out as that there are no there there is no it's understood <laughs> when it comes to this particular work so um, yes, so thank a you huge
0: amount of my concern is simply that uh, it's calling itself a translation, um, which is very misleading. Um, it's not. Um, but if it called itself a paraphrase, yes, I would still have uh, some criticisms, but not nearly the number of things uh, that I think we're going to be talking about. Yeah, I, I did an
1: interview on this topic, uh, and they'd asked me, you know, what if it was a paraphrase? And I said, well, if it, if it just said it was a paraphrase, it would make my job a lot harder <laughs> as far as me trying to say, look, there's problems here because there's so much more flexibility and acceptability of interpretation being put into the text right. that doesn't come directly from the original language or anything. So, uh, But this is what it says on the official translation website. So correct me if I'm wrong. Are you saying that this is just not true? But let me read the quote and then get your your thoughts on this. The Passion Translation is a new version of God's Word that is considered a translation because it uses the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek manuscripts to translate the essential message of scriptures into contemporary English.
0: I think there are two problems with that. Um, certainly, uh, many paraphrases have referred back to the original languages uh, and to the original texts as best as we can reconstruct them. Uh, But what makes something a translation uh, is not uh, simply that they use the original languages, but that they try to adhere closely to the thought of those original languages and do not insert um, words, phrases, clauses, occasionally entire sentences uh, of explanation that however plausible they may be do not correspond to anything in the, the ancient manuscripts that's what really distinguishes something uh, as a paraphrase
1: yeah so it's not the it's not the uh, the source material it's the nature of the work itself that distinguishes it and so they're confusing people with this uh, distinction he, he basically says, look I used I went to original language therefore it's a translation and
0: that's not valid is what you're saying If you you said to me, adios, in Spanish, and I said, allow me to translate that, goodbye, have a great day, hope your next week goes well, and have a really Merry Christmas. Maybe all of that you might have said in Spanish had you had the chance or the time, but that is far more than a translation even though you did accurately translate adios as goodbye.
1: There you go. And that's, that's the Passion Translation in a nutshell right there. Yeah. All right. So you did a, uh, you didn't, excuse me, you did not do a full review of the footnotes of Simmons' work, but you did mention it. You did want to talk about it because you said that there is a glaring recurring error that simply has to be mentioned. Now, in your review, what was so glaringly erroneous that you just had to bring it up?
0: On almost every page, and often about two or three times uh, on every page of footnotes, there is a note to something in the text, and uh, it talks about the Aramaic original. Now, it is true that in the Old Testament, in the books of Ezra and Daniel, There are sections that were not written in Hebrew as the rest of the old Testament was, but were written in Aramaic. But, uh, the passion translation hasn't tackled those yet. They have just done the new Testament and then Psalms and song of songs and a few selected parts of the, the old Testament. There are no Aramaic originals for anybody to consult anywhere. Uh, from the ancient centuries. What apparently has happened, uh, this is my best guess, is that there are Syriac manuscripts as early as the sixth century, though that's not all that early, that um, are written in uh, a dialect, uh, a language that is uh, quite similar to uh, ancient Aramaic, though. 500 years after the time of Jesus. And over the centuries, from time to time, people have, as a kind of thought experiment, uh, who have the ability with the languages to say, what would happen if we translated the Syriac, literally, into Aramaic? And would the meaning of those Aramaic words shed any possible light on on biblical texts? Uh, as best as I can tell, that seems to be uh, what has been done, but it's never explained that that's what has been done. It, it just sounds, if you read to both the front matter as well as the footnotes, as if there must be some ancient Aramaic texts uh, wandering about someplace that somebody has translated.
1: <clears throat> can I Can I add to the problem a bit <laughs> and sure. share with you a quote? The following is actually from Brian Simmons himself. This is what he claims about, it's in a public lecture and, and it's what he claims about the nature of the Aramaic because he's saying that, whoa guys, guess what, there's new info. Scholars are suddenly realizing the New Testament's almost all Aramaic originally. And so this is what he says and I'd like to get your thoughts on it.
2: All of our uh, Bible commentaries and our understanding of the New Testament is based on what is called Greek primacy which is that the original manuscripts, the original autographs of the New Testament, were all written in Greek. Guess what's happened in the last five years? This is really new. Brand new scholarship. Just like they discovered things archaeologically that are astounding. They have discovered, and I've I've read the the scholarly uh, reports, hundreds and hundreds of examples where it's been proven that the Greek manuscripts are second gen copies of the original Aramaic New Testament. That virtually all of the New Testament, there could be some exceptions, but virtually all of the New Testament was originally in Aramaic and then copied into Greek. This causes all the scholars to freak out and go back to the trash can into the dusty corners of their libraries and pull out all the Greek manu- or all the Aramaic manuscripts and realize that they, they had thrown away the
0: origins. It's an astonishing statement. Um, would love to know why he thinks this is true, where he got this from. I don't know if somebody else that he trusted said these kinds of things, and he simply believed them, but I attend annually, except for this year of COVID. Um, uh, Conferences of the Society of Biblical Literature, the Society of New Testament Studies, the um, Evangelical Theological Society, the top several thousand biblical scholars in the world attend of, of all different theological persuasions or, or none in a few instances, and uh, they would rise up As one person and say this simply is not true this is made up Um, no one has discovered uh, ancient Aramaic New Testaments and yes from time to time there are theories that individual scholars have come up with that a particular gospel reads like it could be a Greek translation of a Hebrew or Aramaic original, um, but we've never found them. Uh, Yes, it's true that in one case with the Gospel of Matthew, we have several uh, early Christian uh, church fathers, as we call them, who said there was um, either a Hebrew or Aramaic Matthew uh, before the Greek Matthew that we have, that may well be true. We have never found it. Um, any attempt to to present such a document would be a modern translator's reconstruction, translating backwards from the Greek that we have. Once more, as uh, what's more is after you get beyond uh, the Gospels, there would be no reason there to be Aramaic originals of anything because the epistles are all written uh, to the diaspora, to the rest of the first century Roman Empire, to Christians uh, in many instances that were predominantly Gentile who would have no ability to read Aramaic or Hebrew. The reason the entire New Testament is in Greek and was in Greek originally is because that was the most common language that the most number of people, even if it wasn't their native language, could read. And then on top of that, you have to realize that all of the classic creeds and confessions of faith and, and doctrinal statements throughout history, talking about the inspiration, the infallibility, the inerrancy, the authority, trustworthiness of God's Word have always referred in the case of the New Testament to the Greek. So even if somebody were to find one of these supposed manuscripts, that would not make it authoritative. It certainly would not make it more authoritative than the Greek that God chose to preserve his word in for at least two thousand years.
1: So <clears throat> he's he's making stuff up, it seems. <laughs> you know, he actually uses on his on his website on the Passion Translation In the FAQ section, he uses a quote from Mike Bird, Dr. Mike Bird, out of context to try to support this Aramaic original thing. And Mike Bird actually responded to this publicly and said – he used some pretty strong words and was uh, just saying, like, that's not what I'm saying. (laughs) And then Brian Simmons responded and said, I'll take it off my website. Well, that was over a year ago and it still remains today. They have revised the website. They changed the FAQ occasionally, but they haven't changed that. So there's just very misleading information that I think is – Exciting to the uninformed because they're like, wow, new discoveries in the sure. Bible. But to sure. the informed, it's like offensively erroneous information.
2: 90% of the biblical problems you have with understanding the text of the Bible, 90% of them disappear with the Aramaic text.
1: I just want more people to be informed so they can be offended, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> instead of excited about it. Um, but the, um, the Aramaic stuff, um, how much would you say – his reliance upon Aramaic and his stuff about Aramaic stuff, how much has that impacted his translation in 1 Corinthians?
0: The good news is that it hasn't a lot. Most of the time, uh, when you see one of those footnotes, it's giving you an alternate way of rendering the text that he claims goes back to this mythical Aramaic original. Once in a while, there is something that uh, he actually puts in the text that's not a great translation, um, but he claims it goes back to the Aramaic, and then usually gives um, the more common translation there too. So, if you uh, read uh, the, trend, the, the bigger print, the paraphrase, the text itself, and ignored all of the footnotes, um, it wouldn't be nearly as bad.
1: <clears throat> well, I do have a concern about that Because Brian Simmons does actually tell people That the footnotes were <clears throat> Excuse me He does tell people that the footnotes were inspired I know this sounds weird But he actually says they were inspired That God, God showed him revelations And then told him to put those in the
2: footnotes And he blew on me He breathed on me And he said, I'm commissioning you I'm calling you to do a new translation he promised that he would give me new understanding and new fresh revelation from his word and immediately he gave me a download immediately i began to receive a supernatural download of insight and revelation that has continued to this day it's not a day goes by i don't discover something fresh new powerful that has changed my life and I'm sitting there all by myself. Sometimes my wife's in the house, sometimes not. But I, I, I'm, I'm in my office and I'm getting these revelations. I'm going, how can I express this? How can I show the world these things? Footnote, son, footnote.
1: One of the things the Lord imprinted on your heart is that he would give you some of the secrets to the language. What do you think some of those are?
2: Well, I think uh, homonyms. Yeah. I think just to, to keep it real short and simple... Uh, when he unveiled to me the the secret of homonyms that every hebrew virtually every hebrew word has multiple meanings and to understand that he's saying both not just one right and it, it's so powerful it as enhances we it. we put it in our footnotes i love it yeah. i love it
1: and he says this in public crowds so that the the particular groups that are being promoting this book that are being told by their pastors to get the passion translation are also the same groups that are being led to believe that those footnotes are inspired in some sense, maybe a lesser sense. I don't know what that means, <laughs> but in some sense they're inspired. And in his translation, he, uh, in just first, Corinthians, just first Corinthians, I actually went through the 2020 edition just to double check everybody's work, uh, make sure that it, your criticisms in the previous version still applied to the current version. Well, there's 73 footnotes that reference the Aramaic in just First Corinthians, and 23 verses in First Corinthians that are as translated from the Aramaic. And so those are a lot of, to me, it seems like those would be 73 times that this translation's misleading you in its footnotes that he claims are inspired. Am I going too far by saying that?
0: Occasionally, um, there's not a huge difference in meaning uh, between the two um so i don't want to swear by every one of the 73 mm-hmm. but in general yes that's that's uh, misleading first john 4 um which i think he actually translates paraphrases well enough to get the gist um tells us to test all the spirits right at the very beginning of that chapter and so just because uh, a person however sincere or well-intentioned they might be, uh, makes a claim uh, for God to uh, have revealed something directly to him. Uh, As I've studied uh, a lot of Mormon history and documents over the years, and Joseph Smith certainly made that claim uh, about the Book of Mormon and about uh, subsequent revelations he believed God gave him directly that have been published in the distinctively Mormon scriptures. but. I'm guessing that uh Brian Simmons wouldn't accept all of those simply because the the founder uh, passionately and sincerely claimed that God had revealed it to him. Uh you have to have some standard to test them ag- to test the claims against.
1: Yeah, and my view is this. <clears throat> if Brian Simmons is getting really insight and inspiration from god who supposedly is given secrets of hebrew and greek then when i go to scholars who have spent their lives studying these things they would go wow there's brilliance in this work not oh that's like really wrong (laughs) and so there's there's a way to test it right like he didn't just claim god showed me a new way of viewing it he he claims secrets of hebrew and greek so that's something we can test with people who know those
0: languages and that seems to be uh most, most people who make those kind of claims, and I think of Joseph Smith again, um, but there are other examples, uh, would also say, um, and all the other scholars are wrong, and I'm the only one who's right. Um, and whenever somebody starts to say that uh, on any topic, that um, there is widespread public knowledge, uh, you should be very suspicious.
1: Mm-hmm. I'd say especially if they're not actually building their case in a scholarly fashion. They're just claiming it's revelation. And and it's like starts to get even more suspicious. Um, So in your review, you noted the problem of the lack of italics in the Passion Translation. Can you explain for us uh, how do italics work in a translation? And why is this a problem in the Passion Translation in 1 Corinthians?
0: Italics is simply one way that um, people have chosen Uh, including Bible translators, to indicate uh, when words are added that don't correspond to anything in the original text. If you go back to uh, all kinds of of editions of the King James Version, you will see italics. You'll see them in the New American Standard Bible. Uh, You won't see them, for the most part, in some of the most recent translations, because translators understand now that That their goal is um, not to, in a very wooden way, go word by word and say, well, um, the Greek speaker often left out a form of the verb to be when it was clear from the context. Um, I, a small child in my youth, did such and such, even in English. I don't have to say I was a small child in my youth, but I might put that in to smooth it out and that would be perfectly legitimate. But older translations often did whenever there was uh, a word that was added or perhaps even a phrase for clarity's sake would put things in italics. And as you start uh, the Passion uh, version, it sounds like from their introductory Uh, matter and their practice that that's what they intend to do and there are plenty of places where um, words and phrases, entire sentences are put in italics and almost always uh, that is accurate in that uh, those don't correspond to anything in the, uh, the original languages. The problem is it's about half as many italics as are needed. There are equally uh, significant words phrases and sentences that don't correspond to anything and they're not in italics and so once you've set up that that uh, guideline for people then that deceives them all the more that any place you don't see italics this this must be the real thing mm.
1: Yeah, so yeah, he does tell people I'm going to use italics. And then you mentioned one specific example that I think might help people see what you're talking about. <clears throat> and it was 1 Corinthians 1, verses 11 and 12. And in that example, you said you showed uh, not just that there's a lack of italics, but rather it shows an inconsistency in one place using italics and another not, which then creates an expectation that ends up being misleading. The uh,
0: Passion Translation reads. Um 111 and 12, my dear brothers and sisters, I have a serious concern I need to bring up with you. Um, and that sentence, I have a serious concern I need to bring up with you, uh, is in italics and properly so. It continues For I have been informed by those of Chloe or Chloe's house church, and house church is put in italics. Rightly so. The Greek simply says those of clo, and we have to interpret what that means. That you have been destructively arguing among yourselves. So far, so good. Verse 12. And I need to bring this up because each of you is claiming loyalty to different preachers. The Greek simply has what I mean is most of that is all inserted and it is probably an accurate interpretation, because then following the Greek accurately, Simmons continues, some are saying, I am a disciple of Paul, I follow, or I follow Apollos, or I am a disciple of Peter the Rock, and some say I belong only to Christ, and only is put in italics correctly. And then he goes on, but let me ask you, and that's put in italics correctly. Now we're into verse thirteen. But nothing, uh, and I need to bring this up because each of you is claiming loyalty to different preachers. Corresponds to anything in the Greek, even if that is what's going on.
1: So you're <clears throat> you're you're getting the wrong impression. That it, the question here is not um, is that can that be theologically supported, or can you can you support this in, with an interpretation? The question is, is that creating the right perception in the mind of the person reading the text about what the scripture is saying, and the inconsistent use of italics is confusing if, there. Plus if they were
0: to compare that with any other more standard translation and believed um, the idea that whatever is in italics is actually corresponding to to the original, then they would say, my goodness, I can't rely on a single one of these other translations because they all left uh, a sentence that in English has see how fast I can count here seventeen words in it, and and they just left that out. Well, yeah. no, we didn't. And Simmons put it in.
1: <laughs> yeah. There you go. All right, well let's let's talk about uh, if we can First Corinthians eleven verses four through six. Now this is a really famous um, controversial and important passage it's it's a gender one of the gender role passages you said that when it comes to paul's famous gender role passages special care is needed but here the passion translation seems particularly lacking how is it that you know you have a problem with the way the gender role section is handled uh, by simmons
0: the main issue here and this is a good example uh, for you to bring up because the the main issue here is Not that some things should be put in italics, uh, although you could quibble over different parts um, uh, that weren't put in italics. The main issue here is that what is put in italics um, does not correspond to the historical background or the immediate literary context, and therefore is not good even as a paraphrase. So, verse 4 says, 11.4, 11, uh, 11, 1 Corinthians, any man who leads public worship and the clause who leads public worship is put in italics. And, and that's appropriate because the Greek simply says any man who prays or prophesies with something hanging down over his head. Simmons interprets it as a shawl. That's, that's interpretive, but it's a legitimate option. Um my concern is that uh, without any support from anywhere in what we know of uh, historically or literarily, uh, this is not uh, a command to men in the congregation in general. It's only a command, according to Simmons, to a man who leads public worship. And then conversely in verse five, and if any woman in a place of leadership. Well, now that's intriguing on two grounds, because if it was right for Simmons to put in who leads public worship, then it ought to say who leads public worship here also. If the, everything else is parallel, first it's a man who prays and prophesies, then it's a woman who prays and prophesies. Um, but now he is generalizing to apparently any kind of leadership uh within the church, not just leading public worship. Um, so, what's in italics um, is gratuitous, um, but it's also, uh, it's not parallel, so so uh, there's no reason, even if you thought that was the context, why you should change it from one example to another. Um, And then did you want to look at chapter 14 also? I
1: I would like to, but before we do that, can we look at verse 6 as well? You mentioned, so there's a couple issues you're mentioning. One is um, the paraphrase, and I'm quoting your paper here, the paraphrase in search language that limits the men and women being discussed to leaders, a limitation that is patently not in either the text or its context. But there's also an uh, added phrase in verse 6 that's not italicized. It is in verses 4 and 5. There's consistent, pretty much consistent use of italics. That's right. That's right. What is it in verse 6? That's not justified.
0: Yeah, you get it again in verse six. If a woman who wants to be in leadership uh, will not conform to the customs of what is proper for women. And so um, previously, who leads public worship was in italics. Then for women in a place of leadership was in italics. Um, Why suddenly this becomes not in a place of leadership or who leads public worship, but who wants to be in leadership. So now we're broadening it out to anyone who has a desire. Um, but again, there's absolutely nothing in the Greek that corresponds to who wants to be in leadership.
1: So he's putting into the translation an interpretation that is not justified by the language. Um, it's that—that's not
0: justified I, I, by the language, and it changes from one half verse to the next it's not even consistent in and of itself
1: now it's clear to me that simmons has an axe to grind when it comes to the topic of women and um he's he talks about it frequently in his different messages
2: come on ladies women of god rise up and 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 silence all these critical know-it-alls that say women should never do those things oh yeah make them look like idiots i dare you ladies Come on, challenge this religious spirit that says women can't teach, women can't pastor, women can't prophesy, women can't. What is this women can't stuff? How come it's always the men saying that, by the way? Anyway, you got me on my high horse.
1: He talks about how he's destroyed Mother's Day for those who want to use Proverbs 31 for Mother's Day. It's it's, it's an allegory in his view, Proverbs 31. It's not about a virtuous woman, it's about the church.
2: I read Proverbs 31, I don't even see a woman. I don't see a Mother's Day sermon. I don't see a virtuous woman in Proverbs 31. Not when I read it. It's a parable. It's not a woman. It's a parable. I believe God gave me the key to the book of Proverbs to unlock riddles, parables. He embedded some secrets. There are some things in there that only the spirit of wisdom can unlock. To the illumined heart, to the one drenched with the spirit of wisdom. I'm telling you, like Proverbs 31, I just ruined Mother's Day for like millions of Christians. Because the virtuous woman is not a woman. You ought to read Proverbs 31, when the gift of wisdom comes upon your heart.
1: I, he sees this as a problem, right? He also says that, <clears throat> um, that women are not told to submit to their husbands in Ephesians.
2: And as long as I'm on that, let me just tell you this. In Ephesians 5, ladies, are you sitting down? It says, women, wives, submit to your husbands, right? The Greek language indeed says submit. What if the original text was written in Aramaic and translated into Greek, and they missed it a little bit? Here's the Aramaic text. I'll make some men mad here. I just ruined your abuse system of your wife here. Stop it. But it says that wives be tenderly devoted to your husband, as the church is tenderly devoted to Christ. Just that should sell the Passion Translation, just that one verse. You know, you, you should get it just for that. Come on, ladies, you ought to be cheering here. I should get an invitation to a women's conference before this is all over.
1: And my view is if you want to have that debate, you should have it after the translation, not in the translation, right? right. Like the translation should represent the text. You shouldn't do right. what he's done. And I've talked about that in the review of Ephesians. We talk about the gender passage there. But you also mentioned 1 Corinthians uh, 1.14, And what were the issues you saw there?
0: Um, Corinthians
1: I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians Corinthians 14. 34
0: and following. May I clarify that what you're telling me is that from these other statements, Simmons would be an egalitarian?
1: Yeah, very much so. Very strongly so.
0: That is absolutely fascinating to me because while there are um, passages that made me think that might be the case. I did not do any research on it. When you come to chapter fourteen, the other famous Corinthian yeah, passage. So, uh,
1: I gotta pause you there and just I want the I want people to recognize this. You you determined his particular theology from his translation.
0: No. I guessed at it.
1: Yeah. But it's just weird that you can even guess at it.
0: <laughs> However so what then baffled me and left me completely agnostic about his stance is what he does in 14. Mm. 34, the women should be respectfully silent during the evaluation of prophecy in the meetings. They are not allowed to interrupt, but are to be in a support role, as in fact the law teaches. If they want to inquire about something, let them ask their husbands when they get home. For a woman embarrasses herself when she constantly interrupts the church meeting. Now, there are several issues there, but the big one is the italicized material again. And it's rightly italicized. There is nothing in the text corresponding to during the evaluation of prophecy in the meetings. What's striking about that choice of interpretations, and that is one way that some scholars have explained this, because we just read a passage where it was perfectly acceptable for a woman to pray or prophesy in church, given certain strictures, um, to now simply say the women should be respectfully silent, period, would put Paul flatly in. Contradicting what he said earlier. So there's got to be some explanation. And one of those that has been popular in some circles is that because this is in a context of the use of spiritual gifts, and particularly the gifts of prophecy and of tongues and of interpreting tongues and of evaluating prophecy, that. uh, Evaluating prophecy, which is the most recent one of those that has been mentioned, uh, is the more limited context here. But that is a view that developed particularly uh, under Wayne Grudem a generation ago and is probably the approach of choice among scholarly complementarians today. I don't know of any egalitarians uh, in the scholarly world who hold to this explanation. It allows the complementarian then to say, no, no, we're not silencing, and Paul was not silencing women altogether. But in the evaluation of prophecy, ultimately, because different people might have different opinions, it would be the elders of the church that would have to make a decision, and because they go on to infer from other passages, Paul did not envision women elders, um, then women shouldn't participate in the decision-making that is reserved for male elders. Why an egalitarian would latch onto that interpretation here is beyond me.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> All I could venture a guess, but...
0: It's not, not even the
1: point of this discussion, really, to be honest. It's just to suggest that uh, you said, you put it this way, he acted irresponsibly here. Um, and I think your reasoning for that is that there's, there's a certain amount of respect you have for the ambiguity of a text where you go, this isn't clear. Let's not try to force one interpretation when there's multiple possible viable interpretations. Let's not do that in translating work and call it a translation. Right. Is, is that is that the beef?
0: That's my beef. Yeah. I thought you were going to tell me why he chose this particular approach, but I think
1: it's cuz he's part of the Signs and Wonders movement, so they're they're very pro- prophecy-minded about things. And he does in other places in the translation, he does alter uh, in my opinion, alter the text where like Romans talks about if you have uh, if you can, you know, if you have to get the prophecy prophecy according to your faith, he adds the word activate there, for instance. He's like activate your gift and then he has courses he sells where you can get your gifts activated it's i think it seems like that's probably what's influencing that interpretation yeah yeah i understand yeah so he has a spiritual gift mentality that comes from a traditionally uh complementarian circle and that's been incorporated into his otherwise egalitarian views that would be my guess interesting interesting So, in your review, you talked about why people may be attracted to the Passion Translation. What are your thoughts on that?
0: It's passionate. Um, Regularly, um, we find adverbs and adjectives, in particular, that are added, almost never in italics, to make simple words more exciting Um, I flipped back to the first page of first Corinthians and my eyes lit almost randomly on verse 5 in him you have been made extravagantly rich in every way the Greek has nothing corresponding to extravagantly but The very concept of riches for some people connotes extravagance, so there's nothing horribly wrong with that, and it creates a sense of excitement and and power, I'm not just rich, I'm extravagantly rich. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if I can... Keep playing Bible roulette, and uh, <laughs> um,
1: you find this uh, more often. But see. Uh, you mentioned chapter one, verse three. Paul has a standard greeting in all of his writings, or many of them. He says, "Grace and peace to you." But this is different. In
0: May joyous book. grace and endless peace be yours continually yeah. from our Father. Feels good. I like. I this. like that. Feels good. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is grace something we should be joyous about? Of course. Is it true if I live forever that I will always have peace? Of course. And therefore, is it theologically correct to pray that this joyous grace and endless peace be ours continually? Sure it is just insane of that in the text <laughs> it's just not what paul but said it makes me excited about it
1: yeah yeah it's like it's it's almost like the passion translation is what brian simmons thinks the bible should be it <laughs> should say but but you know it's named actually the passion translation is named according to brian simmons after an angel that he, that he god told him is with his ministry and the angels named passion that's what he named
2: oh the translation goodness. after and So where'd you come up
0: with the word Passion Translation?
2: Well, uh, years ago, I saw an angel named Passion in our church meeting, and uh, the Lord spoke to me, not, not audibly, but internally, and said, That angel is with your ministry. It's the angel of Passion.
1: He does try to present it as though it's just about, sort of in some circles, as if he's just getting insights into the original languages that other people don't have.
2: I have learned a few languages. I'm a linguist. Hi, I'm Brian Simmons. I'm the lead translator for the Passion Translation. As I study the original manuscripts of Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, I have uncovered what I believe is the love language of God. And it's been missing from many modern translations. Saying humbly, I have qualifications in that I have translated the New Testament as a co-translator for the Payakuna language, but beyond scholarly level, I think what qualifies a person to be involved in this monumental project of the Passion Translation is not just a exceptional understanding of Greek and Hebrew, but to have a heart for God, to be passionate for His heart. There's some secrets that He wants to unveil to you and to me and I believe the Passion Translation can help you discover more of what God has for your life.
1: But in other circles, he does admit, um, like for instance, the website, it says that this is not, that doesn't come from any particular tradition or background. Mm. There's no Christian angle being put on this. But in other circles, he admits that this is very much like the, a unique translation. And that it's the only translation that comes from like the signs and visions and uh, trips to heaven. Um, and these are his terms from that movement. With passion uncorked embedded in the text.
2: And to my knowledge, there has never been a translation of the Bible ever in this generation in English from people who believe in the fivefold ministry, dreams, visions, trances, angels coming, the fire of God, divine encounters, people going to heaven and back, getting fresh revelation with passion uncorked, unrestrained, attached to the translation. Mm-hmm. That's a mouthful. And that's what I'm trying to do with the passion translation. Uh, they listed me as one of the most dangerous Christians in our in the prophetic apostolic spirit-filled movement right now. they listed me as one of the one of the most dangerous because of this translation is going to change the church. I said it takes my enemies to get it my enemies are prophesying what's, what's going to happen
1: I think that that's it when he, when he speaks in his charismatic circles, I feel like he's being more open about what this really is. Um. But on the website, he doesn't. He says the opposite of all that stuff. So let's. And I move guess on. we oh.
0: we all do that at one point or another. I may warn people in my church against some local sect or cult uh, in very strong language. Paul warns the Galatians against the Judaizers, but if I am meeting them on my doorstep. I'm probably uh, going to try to be as courteous and polite as possible so they can see the love of Jesus um, so there's there's a certain amount of uh, understanding your audience that that is appropriate but uh, the content is still troubling of what you've reported
1: yeah and I mean those are <clears throat> based on my Examination of the work as a whole, and having looked at every review that's come in and on many passages, I would suggest that it's 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 more than saying. And this is not your words; these are my words. I'm not you're on the hook for what I say here. But in my view, it's more than saying um, he's just speaking differently to different audiences. It's rather that these are contradictory claims, um, mm. and they're the claims that will make the book sell the most in front of those different mm. audiences. And so, to a, a more, I'm charismatic. I believe in the gifts of the spirit. But but to a, a, a strong charismatic or even more hyper charismatic church, when you tell them, um, this is this is our translation, guys, right? This is our this is our version with with the signs and wonders and all this embedded in the text. And God gave me secrets, and an angel visited me. I took multiple trips to heaven. And you tell them all these things, then you go onto the website and you say, in- incorporating insights from the Aramaic, right? And and it's and then saying it's not from any particular tradition or background. It doesn't have any connection to one particular tradition or group. And it starts to look to me um, extremely misleading. But uh, but that's...
0: that um, That is a classic sign of a sectarian or cultic mindset. Um, it's absolutely fascinating. I have very good friends who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I would not want any of them... Listening uh, to this to be offended in any way, but those who are scholarly will know that Joseph Smith said certain things uh, about uh, translating the golden tablets that formed, in his opinion, the basis of the Book of Mormon. But then in other places talked about um, getting revelation directly from God that would theoretically not have required having any plates at all. And, and so, uh, this, this isn't a new idea that, that Simmons has come up with.
1: Yeah, definitely not. Um, <clears throat> so you also give a number of examples from first Corinthians that you say are actually misleading. That's your term for them. Could you walk us through a couple of those examples?
0: If you will give them to me.
1: Uh, first Corinthians ten thirteen is one that you mentioned. You said uh, that yeah. Simmons reverses Paul's meaning. He reverses it. Uh, could you explain that please?
0: I think to do a proper job of this, I'm not actually one of those people that thinks NIV stands for the nearly inerrant version, Um, but uh, I think they've done a competent job with chapter 10, verse 13, and nobody has touched it or revised it since I've been on the committee uh, here is a good, understandable, not word for word, uh, not woodenly literal, but very accurate translation in the NIV of First Corinthians ten thirteen. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful; He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also Provide a way out. And while we're talking about what we wish the Bible would have said, I wish the sentence would have stopped there. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out. But it doesn't. It ends by saying, so that you can endure it. We are not promised escape from every temptation from every trial we are promised the power to bear up under them as a couple of other translations put it now here's the TPT we all experience times of testing which is normal for every human being but God will be faithful to you He will screen and filter the severity, nature, and timing of every test or trial you face. That sentence should be in italics. There's nothing corresponding to that in the Greek. So that you can bear it. Right. That's where the verse ends. That's not where the TPT ends. And each test is an opportunity to trust him more, for along with every trial, God has provided you a way of escape that will bring you out of it, victoriously." Flatly the opposite of what Paul himself wrote. The way of escape is escaping from sin, escaping from succumbing to temptation so that you can bear up under the trial, which is in the TPT, but in the middle of the verse, and then superseded by the last sentence that I just read.
1: So this this could change, and this is actually a common misconception where Christians say things like, God won't give you more than you can handle. And it's really only a promise that we we will not be forced to sin. He will provide the ability to to not sin in that circumstance. It doesn't speak about limiting circumstances in this in the sense that you know you won't give you more than you can handle. But this is this is now uh, reversed in the Passion translation. I think that that was a, a good example of of that. You also mentioned the communion passage in First ah, yes. yeah, eleven verses 20, 29. You said that Simmons has perpetuated a long-standing misinterpretation of this passage in his translation. Can you break that down for us?
0: How many times have, have people heard uh, a pastor or a preacher say, um, if you haven't felt close to God recently, if you've been in willful sin, if you're rebelling against him, uh, just just Let the elements pass you by if they're passed out, or you don't need to come up to the altar if you come up front, Um, because Paul talks about being worthy to accept communion. And even in settings where people don't say that, the ordinary churchgoer or parishioner will often wonder, should they refrain, because I'm just feeling particularly unworthy here again let me contrast translations the NIV of verse 27 says whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner that's a single Greek adverb which we could render unworthily in an unworthy manner well what does that mean um does that mean i kick my feet up and i'm listening to reggae music while i sip the cup or (laughs) um go back earlier in the passage what's the problem in corinth verse 20 so then when you come together it's not the lord's supper you eat for when you are eating some of you go ahead with your own private suppers this is the original church potluck meal the rich could bring more food eat it all before the poor even all got there and they might not have enough for themselves as a result one person remains hungry and another gets drunk don't you have homes to eat and drink in or you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing that's the context being concerned for the poor members within the Christian community who don't have enough to eat or drink. Eating and drinking unworthily is then eating, overeating, and over drinking. Well, that's hard to do in churches that just give you a teeny tiny little cup and a, a microscopic piece of flat bread. But um, speaking of my own, um, <laughs> but uh, the idea of simply being utterly unconcerned for the poor, the poor fellow believer the poor fellow believer right within your own congregation to to be unaware or unconcerned that's what it means to eat unworthily and and now and then you find churches who have recovered this and uh, and teach it Um, if I go to uh, the passion uh, version I read verse 27 For this reason, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in the wrong spirit will be guilty of dishonoring the body and the blood of the Lord. So let each individual first evaluate his own attitude and only then eat the bread and drink the cup. Verse 29 for continually eating and drinking with the wrong spirit. will Well, what is this wrong spirit, this this wrong attitude? It's possible that somebody could make a link from that back to uh, dissing those who don't have enough. But given the history in the Christian church of people being told, examine your heart. What's your attitude? Are you are you doing this with appropriate reverence? Are you right with God? Um, it, it just feeds into that uh, without any further explanation.
1: <clears throat> Which can create, in my view as a pastor, it just creates this anxiety and this, instead of seeing the sufficiency exactly. of Christ's work in communion, I see the insufficiency of my own works instead, and, and I'm actually thinking I have to be good enough to partake of the exactly. sacrifice that was meant for the one who was not good enough, and it, yeah, it's it's a sad emotional strain and stress to put into what what is supposed to be the thing that relieves all that, which is exactly. is the the work of Christ. Oh, let's talk about the the Yahweh uh, verse. So in First 1 Corinthians fifteen forty seven, it says Yahweh there. You pointed out that that was a potential problem relating to the doctrine of the Trinity. Could you uh, explain that to us?
0: Jesus, God the Son, is not the same as Yahweh, God the Father, who in turn is not the same as the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The classic Trinitarian confessions of faith, even when we admit all that is hard to understand or that we can know only. Analogically, um, certainly says that all three persons are co equal, but they are all distinct persons. And you do not you, you, you find the word Lord, Kurios, in the Greek, um, Adonai in the Hebrew, and Jews regularly substituted Adonai for Yahweh. Uh, We don't actually know. It's probably closer than Jehovah, but we don't know for sure Um, because they didn't pronounce it. It was too sacred. Uh, They didn't even put in the vowels. Uh, So it's just four unpronounceable consonants. There is no place in Scripture where Jesus is equated with Yahweh in the sense that they are indistinguishable. Um, You can call either one of them Lord, you can call the spirit Lord, because Lord can mean master as well as God, deity. Um, But to say the second man, the first man is Adam, the second man is Jesus, to say Jesus is Yahweh You don't have two separate persons anymore. You just have, um, of course, the spirit isn't here, uh, but uh, um, yeah, you've blurred the distinction between God the Father and God the Son.
1: Now that you said is, it's not, not only is there a theological thing there, but for people to know, this is um, a textual critical issue. It's like, why are you putting Yahweh into this text in the first place? It's not justified from the Greek, generally speaking. Exactly. In his footnote, he actually says, as translated from the Aramaic. And this is in the 2020 edition, which I don't know if if, if that has a footnote. The other one didn't. They added a bunch of new footnotes. No,
0: it's it's there in, in the 2018 as well. And okay. there's no Aramaic, so it can't be translated from it.
1: There you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, so it seems clear to me, personally, uh, my view, that the Passion Translation has purposely been made to incorporate a particular view of the gifts of the Spirit. And it fits with what some would call the hypercharismatic movement. I think that Brian Simmons has admitted as much in some contexts while he denies it in other contexts.
2: Fivefold ministry, dreams, visions, trances, angels coming, the fire of God, divine encounters, people going to heaven and back, getting fresh revelation with passion uncorked, unrestrained, attached to the translation. And that's what I'm trying to do with the Passion
1: Translation. One example of this could be how he translates 1 Corinthians twelve seven. What can you tell us about Brian Simmons' rendering of this verse?
0: Each believer is given continuous revelation by the Holy Spirit to benefit not just himself, but all there is no continuous in the original and the word rendered revelation is phanerosis, which basically means an appearance or manifestation of something revelation is an acceptable translation in certain contexts where it's clear that we are not talking about something that is uniquely divine um i accidentally opened a package addressed to my wife the other day and had a revelation of what one of my christmas presents is supposed to be Uh, (laughs) and uh, neither the source nor my action were, were divine um in doing so uh, but then to add the word continuous context where it's from the Holy Spirit certainly sounds like there is both a qualitative and a quantitative difference here. When in context, the, the whole point Paul is saying is the spirit is the one who decides how to distribute spiritual gifts He gives one to somebody, he gives a different one to somebody else. We can't claim that everybody has to have any particular gift. Uh, He's trying to play down what has been a bit of a hyper charismatic experience of some of the Corinthian Christians. So for him to have meant by that, every single one of you is given continuous revelation would be completely incongruous. He's saying, nobody's lost out. Even the least important or the one who feels least important, you have a gift from God. Find it, use it, you're valuable. Nothing about continuous.
1: Except it was translated from the Aramaic according to the footnotes, so (laughs) (laughs) touche.
0: But there is no Aramaic.
1: Well, there's that. There's that. But most people don't know that. So there you go. Um, so you said that an entire clause is missing. This is in uh, chapter 10, verse 25. So what, what is the clause that's missing that should be in this verse?
0: TPT says, yes, you are free to eat anything without worrying about your conscience. Interesting. Can I eat nails? Probably not. Wouldn't taste good. Might do me in. Eat anything sold in the meat market. The makelon is the Greek word there. Paul has been contrasting uh, some Corinthian scruples about ever eating meat that had had a prayer to some pagan god spoken over it, a kind of blessing, making it, if we want to mix metaphors horribly, making it kosher for the pagan world. (laughs) But kosher, of course, is a Jewish term. Um, And he is saying, somebody praying over a chunk of meat that you find in the marketplace doesn't do a single thing to that piece of meat, even if they think it does. You're free to buy it. You're free to eat it. Now, some of you may have eaten some of that identical meat in an idol's temple, in one of the pagan temple worship services in Corinth. No, no, don't do that. That's participating in worshiping. And even though those idols are nothing, they don't really exist, there is demonic power behind them. So, so don't get caught up in pagan worship. And now he's summarizing what he's been saying, uh, which is is why uh, he starts off with uh, with a so here. Um, but it sounds like this whole issue of distinguishing between uh, the meat sold in the marketplace, the meat eaten as part of a temple worship service, has has gone out the window because there's no reference to what is sold in the marketplace it's just gone, and I can't even find a an Aramaic justification for it in a footnote
1: <laughs> yeah, there's no footnote, no footnote at all no so you, you you lose the you lose a major thing that he's trying to teach here in this
0: passage because of the missing phrase um, so <clears throat> you might remember it, and maybe he felt like this was unnecessary repetition I don't know. But it was there. It is there.
1: I personally was really concerned with Brian's rendering of First Corinthians 7.21. And could you summarize for us, like, how is First Corinthians 7.21 different than what's actually written in that passage? Uh, the NIV says, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. But the Passion Translation says... Were you a slave? When you heard the call to follow Jesus, don't let that concern you. If you can gain your freedom, make the most of the opportunity. It says, even if you can gain your freedom, excuse me, make the most of the opportunity.
0: It's ambiguous. Uh, The Greek is very clipped at this point. Uh, It basically uh, says something like, um, rather more. More rather more what um, is this saying don't be concerned about the state you were in when you were called as a believer if you're a slave don't try to gain your freedom if you're single don't try to get married if you know whatever circumcised don't worry about it or is 721 the one key exception which is what you expect to find when there is a, a but a contrast but if you can gain your freedom uh, even is not nearly as common a translation of the greek word there uh, But if you can gain your freedom, rather more, take that much more advantage of it. Uh, A scholar by the name of Scott Barchi, already in the 1970s, did an entire doctoral dissertation uh, on this two-word expression and all the uses of it he could find in ancient Greek. And in the minds of most scholars, conclusively showed that uh, it means take advantage of an opportunity, not defer from taking advantage of it. I don't honestly know which of those Simmons believes is correct, because he says, even if you can gain your freedom, well, when you start with an even if, you expect him to be taking the conservative approach and say, even if you can gain your freedom, stay with your slave master or something along those lines. But he says, make the most of the opportunity. Well, how do I make the most of it by staying or by getting my freedom? I don't know.
1: Yeah, it becomes ambiguous. Now, this is interesting because there's at least three different reviewers that mentioned how Simmons translated passages where there were instructions regarding slaves or masters. So in Ephesians, where it talks about masters, don't threaten your servants. He changes this. He changes this to church leaders, and he's like leaders of the flock. Forgive your basically forgive the people in your church who sin against you, and it, instead of not threatening, it, it's it's weird. Um, in other places, it's the same thing. So consistently, I, I think that he doesn't think this is a significant issue. Perhaps I mean I'm getting behind his head, and I probably shouldn't do that. But the bottom line is that the if you're if you are a slave. In multiple places in his New Testament translation, the instructions to you are obscured or actually missing um, and replaced with an instruction to somebody else. Um, it's, it doesn't even say slaves in Ephesians. It says employees. Yeah. So problematic. Yeah. Your paper says that the rendering of 736, chapter 7, verse 36, is particularly confused. That's the term you used. What does this verse say? Um, or I, maybe I'll just say, how is it confused? What's the confusion that's going on here?
0: TPT says, however, if a man has decided to serve God as a single person, yet changes his mind and finds himself in love with a woman, although he never intended to marry, let him go ahead and marry her. It is not a sin to do so. The actual text of what Paul wrote, says, if anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably towards the virgin or young woman he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. Hard as it is for us to believe in our sex-crazed world, in the early centuries of church history, there were people who believed that celibacy was the highest form of spirituality. And uh, this view probably began already thanks to some Greek philosophy in the Corinthian church in the first century. It certainly can be traced over the next several centuries. And so um, there would have been individuals who were considering marriage, who heard this false teaching and thought, oh my gosh, I better not go ahead with the relationship that I've been pursuing. And what Paul is saying is, no, it's perfectly fine to do that, particularly if your passions are too strong if your libido is such that you can't imagine a life of celibacy, um, here in TPT, we've got somebody who's decided one thing changes his mind. Um, there's nothing of that in Paul's text.
1: There you go. So it's, it's just confusing. Now in his footnote, he says, this is one of the hardest verses in the new Testament to translate. Um, I don't know. And then you nah,
0: there are, there are a lot of harder ones.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe hardest one of the hardest for him. I don't know. But the, uh, the one of the conclusions you give in your paper is that the as far as the the alterations are places where there seems to be unjustified additions or at least in the name of a translation that that wouldn't be there. You say the most passionate parts are Simmons additions rather than actual translations. Uh, Very the commonly. impression is that what the passion translation offers that's unique Is also not a translation and that in other words it's what's what's attractive about it what sells it what people are interested in it how he presents it to others that's the very things that you would take issue with when it's being presented as a translation
0: and again to to go back to where we started uh, a fair amount of that could be fine if he had simply called it a paraphrase Um. I'm looking at Paul's famous love chapter, for example, in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 13. And if I were to have the gift of prophecy with a profound understanding of God's hidden secrets, and if I possessed unending supernatural knowledge, and if I had the greatest faith that could move mountains, but have never learned to love, then I am nothing. Absolutely true the most amazing ability with any spiritual gift if used in a loveless way amounts to nothing. What really gives that the punch is that it's not just understanding it's profound understanding it's not just secrets it's hidden secrets well yeah most secrets are Um, it's not just knowledge it's unending and supernatural it's not just the gift of faith it's the greatest gift of faith it's not just but have not love it's have never learned to love and and I read that, and I'm touched, and I'm saying, gosh, i got to be loving. And I'm so sorry when I've messed up and not treated people that way. And that's an appropriate reaction, but it's through a half a dozen extra words that aren't untrue to the text, but they're not in the text. It's, that's the way to do a paraphrase well. But yeah. it's not a translation.
1: I feel like the, the guy actually is really gifted. It's just that the gift is being packaged and presented in a way that's misleading to people. And if, if he would have come under the reins of of more openness and integrity and honesty, and if, and if he wasn't trying to channel the work of the Holy Spirit the way he seems to be, he could actually present something that might actually be of great benefit to the body of Christ. But it's just tainted now.
0: And I'm sure he must be very passionate yeah. And there is something in our politically correct world. We don't want the kind of passion that leads to violence, obviously, and discrimination, and racism, and sexism, etc. But people that have learned that have sometimes swung the pendulum so that they can never raise their hands and get excited about anything or raise their voice and be passionate. I like that part. Yeah.
1: All right, let's talk about some quick fire responses. I'm going to get your, if possible, your one-sentence response to each of the following quotes. These are this is this is the way the passion translation is being shopped out. It's the information on the website. This is what a lot of people who really trust Brian Simmons and the publisher here are thinking about it. So I'm quoting now from the website, they say the Passion Translation is an excellent translation you can use as your primary text to seriously study God's Word.
0: No. Is that short enough? That's short enough. It (laughs) can't be used as your primary translation or for serious study, but it could help if you know what the original says, as a secondary tool in many but not all instances.
1: Now, the way that the Passion Translation, in my view, has uh, become so popular, it's already of copies, even though it's not even a completed work yet. There's, There's a bunch of the Old Testament's not done. Um, But still millions of copies already have sold. It's very popular in some churches. It's replacing their Bible for the pulpit. And for many people, it's becoming the only Bible that they read as their primary text. And one of the ways this has happened is because prominent, very famous, very influential pastors have endorsed it. Some of them have. And one of them is a guy named Bill Johnson. Uh, Bill Johnson has said the following, and I'd like to get your thought on this quote. He says, one of the, the passion translation is, one of the greatest things to happen with Bible translation in my
0: lifetime. I'm assuming he's been alive for more than a few years. Yeah, 1951 was his And that he is aware of the dozen or more excellent translations that have been produced in his lifetime. So... That is just an astonishing, if not appalling claim that flies in the face of reality.
1: All right, let me get your thoughts on the next one. So this is from page eight in the new 2020 edition of the Passion Translation. It's printed with the books themselves. And it says the Passion Translation is committed to bringing forth the potency of God's word in relevant contemporary vocabulary that doesn't distract from its meaning or distort it in any way.
0: Can we if, trust that that? Se- if that sentence had stopped after the first two clauses about its potency and its relevance, I could have agreed but it distracts and it distorts, sadly, repeatedly. Yeah.
1: This is what it says on the official translation website. The text was interpreted from the original language carrying its original meaning and giving you an accurate, reliable expression of God's original message.
0: Then there would have been no mention of a non-existent original Aramaic if that were true. And there would have been no need for even the words and clauses that Simmons acknowledges have been inserted to bring out the meaning which he puts in italics. The very fact that he does that about half of the time that he should have, even that much acknowledges that it is much more than a straightforward translation
1: yeah thank you because these things are misleading and people if it wasn't for all the press around the passion translation it was just called a paraphrase uh i don't think we'd be having this conversation Uh, yeah so in your opinion uh, as it stands the way it's being presented with the promotional material that should the passion translation be in it not i mean we're not talking about banning books but Your preference, would the pastor translation be in bookstores, Bible apps, places like Bible Gateway alongside other Bible translations where you're just flipping through and
0: there it is? It should be in Bible Gateway because I checked and Bible Gateway also has the original living Bible paraphrased and it has the message. So, and it has dozens and dozens of other translations, some that most people have never heard of. And that's just in English. So it clearly is aiming for a certain comprehensive scope that makes including uh, TPT legitimate. A Bible app, well, what's its purpose? Again, if it's an app that is intended to allow you to compare a whole slew of translations, then I would have no objection to it being there. Um, If a bookstore owner... We're uh, trying to imitate Amazon and having as broad a selection as possible of everything under the sun. There would be no reason to censor it. But as I find when I talk to bookstore owners where they still exist, um, most of them are trying to be selective in the Bibles that they include, knowing that they can't just 24 different translations in front of people and baffle them. Um, If you're trying to just select a good cross-section of the best at different levels of English reading, then I would discourage including this.
1: Great. Now, this is kind of an awkward question I have to ask. I'm asking pretty much everybody about this. But um, Brian Simmons has claimed that God gave him secrets of Hebrew and Greek, And that God gave him a a deep insight into the true meaning of
2: Scripture. And he blew on me. And he breathed on me. He breathed on me. He breathed on me. He promised that he would give me new understanding and new, fresh revelation from his word. And uh, he promised that he would uh, give me secrets that had not been disclosed. I began to receive a supernatural download of insight and revelation that has continued to this day. And I felt downloads coming instantly. I received downloads. It was like I got a chip put inside of me. I got a connection inside of me to hear him better, to understand the scriptures better, and hopefully, to translate. Secrets that only come from above. I discovered and uncovered so many mysteries and glory realms in the book of Psalms. It will take your breath away. I believe God gave me the key to the book of Proverbs. I've made some discoveries. I don't know who to talk to. I mean, I'm finding out all these secrets and I'm translating. "Ah!" Revelation secrets. I told you that the Lord had given me secrets and he has. The secrets of the Lord. He's beginning to share them with me, and I'd like to share them with you. Is that a good enough commercial?
1: Based on your examination of 1 Corinthians, do those claims bear
0: out? There are at least some places where they can't be correct. I can't say they never are correct claims, but there certainly are some places where they can't be correct.
1: Yeah. When uh, when you we start to see that dependence on the Aramaic, and then we didn't even talk about homonyms. <laughs> A lot of the stuff you see is, I, he's talked about how homonyms, well, well, put it this way, he says that one of the secrets that God showed him was homonyms, and that while Greek, in his his teaching here, Greek doesn't have tons of homonyms, Hebrew is nothing, this is his words, nothing but homonyms, and that God showed him this, and so when he's translating, he'll look for homonyms and multiple meanings, and then he'll incorporate both of those meanings or three of those meanings into the text adding extra words to form those into sentences.
2: When he unveiled to me the the secret of homonyms that every Hebrew virtually every Hebrew word has multiple meanings and to understand that he's saying both not just one. Right. And it, it's so powerful it as enhances we it. we put it in our footnotes. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Now when Jesus came to me and said I'm going to give you secrets. One of the secrets he gave me was uh, that of homonyms. The Lord showed me it's the homonymic uh, structure of Hebrew is going to be the key to understanding Revelation in the last days, including the book of Revelation, which you haven't got yet, honestly. I did a research study into that word etsev, which is the Hebrew word for pain, but it's a homophone or a homonym that has multiple meanings. And one of the other meanings of pain in the Hebrew context is Creativity. Creativity. And I put a footnote there in the book of Genesis to note that. The word for singing is a homonym. Singing is a homonym that also means pruning the vines. that is a homonym. Kala is an Aramaic homonym. It's a homonym. Nashak means kiss, but it also means to take up weapons and go to war. Uh, full of homonyms. Full of secrets with multiple meanings. Hebrew is poetic and passionate, uh, and one word can mean many multiple things. But what if, for 2,000 years, the church has been robbed of uh, what Jesus really said?
1: That is, I mean, this is, to me, this is a very testable claim. Hey, God showed me homonyms, and then I can go to other people and say, hey, is that like legit? Did God show him something great there, or is, or is he just being weird?
0: Make up your uh, favorite pair of English homonyms, Um, lead and lead. And half of my students can't even spell the past tense of lead correctly. Uh, They think L-E-A-D is the past tense as well as the present, when in fact it's L-E-D L E A D, when pronounced lead, is the chemical element PB. I don't even remember what bizarre Latin word generated that. One of the few things I remember from high school chemistry. And if every time I said in good charismatic style, I've been led, and I could make that mean I'm a chunk of graphite like you put in a pencil, it would just make a mockery of language. The whole point of homonyms is you have two words that are pronounced the same, they don't mean the same thing, and in almost every context, you can't substitute one for the other, or you totally change the meaning or come out with something nonsensical, and the same is true in Hebrew. Any true Hebrew scholar would tell you that. I think, yeah,
1: that to me, this is testable, right? Because he didn't just say secrets and keep it vague. At least in this case, he gave the example. And if the example is preposterous, then you go, okay, that gives me at least a good reason to doubt the claim and uh, without having to reject the work of the spirit or not be open to God speaking to somebody. It's just testing this particular claim. Um, Let's pretend a Christian turns to you. They say, I'm going to get the Passion Translation. It's like a new translation. It's the best thing that's ever happened to translations. I'm excited all about it. It's going to give me insights that other translations just, they've never uncovered because according to Simmons, angry translators make angry translations. And you know, angry translators are going to have angry translations. His is very much led by the Lord. So if you had like 10 seconds with that person, what would you say to them?
0: You are free to read anything you want, I think it's still a free country, sort of, Um, but realize what it is you're reading and the parts that give you greater passion may be very helpful to that end, but there are places where it's just flat out wrong, so don't give up a standard translation.
1: That's good. That's good, man. Just that alone, not giving up a standard translation would be a tremendous help. You wouldn't mind, would you please read for us the final section of your review? I thought you summarized things really well there and just wanted people to hear that. In fact, I do recommend you guys read the paper. It was really well written and very easy
0: to follow and uh, very informative. But for someone who isn't already familiar enough with scripture to sort the original the overlay, this version, TPT, will prove too misleading for it to be recommended. If a literal translation of TPT were provided to an unreached people group in some other language, who had not previously had a Bible in their language, it would certainly be adequate to teach them everything necessary for salvation and much that is appropriate for sanctification. But with the plethora of English language translations and paraphrases already available, it is hard to see why TPT was even necessary. Despite some of the wonderful passion and turns of phrase, there are also enough problems with it that it probably should have the Surgeon General's warning on it about its potential hazards.
1: There you go. Just put a slap a label on there. <laughs> Surgeon General's warning. Um, now, I, at, at the close of the interview here, I, I'd like to promote one of your books. I think you've written lots of uh, different useful books. Is there one that you think would be good for maybe the general public who's not well versed in theology apologetics, but they're just starting to get interested? Like they're just at that beginning point. What do you think you'd recommend for them?
0: I have written some very popular level books but not remotely related to this topic and probably the simplest that some people would find simple and maybe others would be a little challenged by is can we still believe the Bible Um, because it does include uh, a chapter on the whole question of Bible translation. Mm -hmm. Published by Brazos Press, came out in 2014.
1: Well, I'm going to put a link to that down below. That's your recommendation, and people can check that out if they like. If they appreciate your insights and your thoughts and your balanced um, and methodical way of working through things, uh, Dr. Bloomberg, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate you being part of this project. And I'm, I'm, you know, from the, I just want to be the bridge. I'm going to like get the scholars to kind of help reach out and make that bridge to normal people who are asking questions and legitimately don't know. They look at the text and they go, I don't know how to evaluate this thing, what to think of it. And your guys' work in this is going to make that, um, make that light turn on. It will be a source of continuous revelation.
0: <laughs> Did fantastic. you just undermine everything we tried to do? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thank you all for watching and being part of this thing. I do hope that this information spreads out far and wide and we can get this content into more people's awareness because I think that pa- some pastors have clumsily endorsed and supported the Pastor translation because it makes them feel so good. And they don't realize that it's got serious, serious problems, both in its nature and of the translation and the footnotes and in the claims of the guy who's making millions off of it right now. If you want to help this project reach more people, you can do that by sharing and liking and subscribing and that kind of thing. That's going to be it for a little while for my passion project. It's going to be just on hold while I get a couple more people to write papers and do at least two more, maybe more videos, interviews, and papers being written. If you're wondering why I'm getting so many Scholars and so many papers written on so many books of this new version of the bible. The reason is this brian simmons in the past has responded to criticism from people by just changing the very little examples the passages right where they use examples of where his work is flawed, but he doesn't go and change those same flaws everywhere in the work. He just changes little tweaks and adjustments in my opinion so that he can dodge criticism. Anyways, the point here is that I don't want criticism that can easily be dodged by making tiny little tweaks that haven't really changed the substantive issues that are going on in the work. There just are so many pervasive issues with this translation, right? As Dr. Blomberg said, it deserves a Surgeon General's warning because of its potential hazards so that's the reason why the project is is more comprehensive than is maybe some would consider necessary but at the same time i want to make sure these interviews give you guys insights and thoughts that you're learning about bible translation you're learning about scriptures you're learning you know it's like a little mini bible study even as we do these things oh and i'll link as well in this video i'll put it as an in screen when i do my video on brian simmons false prophecy because yes he's got false prophecy and That's a big thing to say, but it is, I believe, true. I'm actually going to make a video doing this. I'll put a link up when I get that video ready, and you'll see it here somewhere. And thank you all for your support, your encouragement, and your excitement for this project, because what I sense in you is a love for the authentic Word of God. That's awesome. That's exciting. Let's love Scripture. Let's love God's Word. Let's live God's Word, and let's not let this distraction become our obsession But let's thoroughly vet it, deal with it, address it, and then move on.
2: And then I woke up.